Welcome back, everybody, to the Real Grip Show Smackdown Review. And this is an addition I've been very excited about because not only is it the first pay-per-view 2000, it's one of the most fondly remembered pay-per-views of this year and probably one of the most fondly remembered Royal Rumble pay-per-views of all time. It's Royal Rumble 2000. I am your usual host, Scott McLeod. And this week, I thought I can't just have one guest to talk about the Royal Rumble. I need two guests. And as they to reach out to two guests I've had on before, we've got a three-man booth for Rumble 2000. And not only that, it's a Rasslin' Boggs reunion. Because, first off, I've got a man who, the original founder of Rasslin' Boggs, the man who's still using the Twitter account, <laughs> Mike Philpott. <laughs> How's it going? It's going very well, man. I'm glad you're, uh, you're here. I'm back, I'm back. <laughs> Good to have you. And... The man who may be partly responsible for this being one of the longer pay-per-view reviews we've done. Uh, CR Rumble 2020 review, uh, as an example, this may have to go into parts. We're playing it by year. It's uh, Sam Preston. Hey, I can't help it if it turns out I'm really good at blabbering on. It's your job to control me. I, ju- I just talk, and I'm very good at that, it seems. So if this ends up being a 17-part special with four parts dedicated just to the street fight, well, I'm all up for it. <laughs> i got no complaints here. I've talked enough for that, so that's fine. Oh, okay. It's going to be end of like one of those bloody Netflix documentaries with multiple parts, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, where where, where 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 it really didn't need to be. Yeah, it got like twelve episodes, and everyone's like, "Oh, I'm pretty sure they could edit it down to eight. And they go, "Yeah, but then Sam started speaking. And that's where the other four episodes came from. So it's the it's the only way we could fit everything in. So and Scott was too polite to shut him up. Yeah, <laughs> Scott, Scott's going to take his time. Eventually, he'll learn to shut him up. But I'll see if I take the hint at any point. <laughs> So, guys, I, I reached out to both of you to co- talk about coming on to this uh, pay-per-view review, and uh, you guys were very quick to say yes to this because I think, like I said in the intro, this is a very fondly remembered pay-per-view. I'll go to both of you the individual. If you guys have any particular memories of uh, watching this, this pay-per-view, I'll start with uh, Mike. I mean, for me, I, I wasn't massive into... Well, I was kind of flitting between watching WWE and not watching WWE in that time. But there's always one thing that, that sticks with me from that. In, and it's more in the build-up, because like, I've heard so many people... Uh, I think Jim Smallman said it when he was talking. And, um, I can't remember who he was talking about. But it was someone, someone in progress. But like the reaction that he wanted was... Um, basically look as shocked as Triple H did when Cactus, when Cactus Jack came back. And that's, that's the, I, I remember the promo package and what, watching it again. I mean, I watched it again today and it was just, it kind of brought back all the memories of, oh yeah, that was, that was, it, it was a good time. It was, it was good. Hey, Sam, what about yourself? 
This is actually um, a very important pay-per-view for me because it was the first ever WWF pay-per-view I properly watched. Um, at the time, I was nine years old, and I remember that this is going to really age me when I say this. I know it. I remember my mum recording it off of Channel 4 on VHS, and I spent the next year pretty much rinsing through that video watching it as much as possible i'm gonna say for the street fight it's not for the swimsuit competition before you throw that in mike because i know you're gonna go for that um i absolutely loved this pay-per-view it was what introduced me to wwf it was what got me into wwf and i will probably go so far as to say if i hadn't watched this pay-per-view i don't think i'd still be a fan wow that's a Strong statement. Like I said, uh, I I probably wasn't watching at the time of it. Again, I was probably someone who went back and and watched it. One of the first cuts I watched was like uh, I didn't really know a lot about Taz as a wrestler, and then I got to see his match from this show. And then I remember wanting to watch more of the preview when I I was I went through a weird phase of just going into YouTube and looking up promo packages for matches that I wouldn't end up going on and watching. I just was watching promo package after promo package, and I found the one for the street fight. And that's one of my like, main memories of this pay-per-view. And I guess I will say that when I was younger, I really liked the Royal Rumble match itself in this pay-per-view. I have varying thoughts a bit older now about the Royal Rumble match, which we'll get into later on. But Sam raised a really good point here that this was the first pay-per-view in WWE's uh, only one-year-long deal with Channel 4, and there'll be a particular incident in this show is blamed for why we don't have that Channel 4 deal at the time. But I think uh, as fans being in the UK, it was considered like a really big deal for us, especially for wrestling, especially as when the WF is hot as it is in 2000, to be on like a terrestrial TV channel that anybody can view. Mm. I think in comparison to like like nowadays where you've got people talking about being able to watch AEW on ITV and you've got Impact on on Bravel channels at some points and you had War and Smackdown on Sky, like nowadays you kind of get used to the idea that you can watch this sort of thing. But a pay-per-view live on a terrestrial channel back then was such an unlikely possibility that getting that opportunity, I reckon, easily helped balloon WWF into getting popularity in the UK especially, just because of all these opportunities. They can go, I can actually watch these big events, I can actually get involved, talk about it, etc. It was a tremendous idea, and I think the positive repercussions of it would happen over the next year or two, but unfortunately, the major negative repercussion, which is caused by this pay-per-view, also took into effect as well. So, it, for nostalgic reasons, I'm very much looking forward to going through this pay-per-view. Yeah, Mike, Sam, uh, a good point. I think that's why a lot of us were quite excited when you heard like ITV getting involved with AEW because that is also a terrestrial channel and. I think for some older fans that harken back to when WWE had this Channel 4 deal. Yeah, I mean, I obviously I, I caught bits on Channel 4, but for me, like I, I was quite lucky. My parent, I grew up with my parents having Sky Sports, and obviously for a, for a large part of my life, pay-per-views weren't pay-per-views. They were always on Sky 1, um, Sky Sports 1, so I could just record it from Sky Sports 1 and then like onto, onto a VHS and then re-watch it. I mean, I, I did that 
the, the one that really springs to mind is WrestleMania 20. That one I have watched out countless times, mm. and that was mm-hmm. that was when it was on Sky Sports One. So yeah, it's, I mean it's it's crazy how pay per views now are actually pay per views, and and they they just weren't back then. Obviously for the for the US audience, it was, and that was that was the norm. But over here, we we, we were lucky. Mm-hmm. Definitely, I agree. Yeah, WrestleMania 20 is a big one for me. Uh, I had that uh, taped for me on a VHS. I watched that quite a lot. Remember uh, shitting myself the first time uh, they did the Paul Bear, the Paul Bear return. The, oh yeah, not knowing that was happening <laughs> at that point. Didn't know who Paul Bear was. Royally shit myself. <laughs> but you know, then I ran up against myself and paid for recordings after that. But it was weird when I was watching it, like Ruthless Aggression era that. Like it seemed to be Sky would get bloody the B pay per views, but every time one of the bigger ones came around, it was always on Skybox office, which I couldn't get. So you know, mm-hmm. I couldn't watch, couldn't watch the Rumble or Survivor Series, but you could always watch No Mercy or fucking Taboo Tuesday. Hey, Taboo Tuesday was the one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Backlash used to always be one of those ones that you could easily watch on Sky Sports, and so was No Way Out. So it's almost like you got the build-up to WrestleMania and you got the aftermath of WrestleMania, which sometimes worked out better because you could get to watch Kurt Angle versus The Undertaker in the main event of No Way Out, or you could watch the Triple Threat rematch at Backlash 2004, uh, but you completely missed WrestleMania itself. So it's quite strange, but you got to see some absolute classics by pure luck. And Yeah, I, I mean, you see you said about No Way Out, you got um, Eddie beating Brock. Mm-hmm. That was no way out. That sort of thing. Yes, so. absolutely. Oh, that that one still makes me emotional every time I, I remember it because I was thirteen, I think, watching it at like two o'clock, like three, four o'clock in the morning, trying not to cheer because I'd wake my mum up by accident <laughs> and she had Always a morning shift, and I'm just like, yes, really quietly <laughs> as much as possible. Um, but it was so, uh, th- some of those moments that you got to actually see live were. Just oh, just fantastic! It, it it's kind of lost a little bit in comparison to nowadays, where we're all so old and bitter and twisted that we don't enjoy the moments as much. Whereas back then, we could enjoy the moment for what it was. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're so ingrained in it. We're all very cynical, aren't we? Mm. <laughs> <Speaking> yourself. <laughs> he's not cynical. He's just Scottish. Leave him alone. <laughs> I'm not yeah, so I've got my own <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Also, like about pay-per-views not being pay-per-views really in the UK because you had Channel 4 and then you had Sky. I'm pretty sure, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't WrestleMania X7 uh, showing on Sky Sports, one of the Sky Sports channels for kind of free? Because I, I have a memory of like, the first time I watched WrestleMania X7 was like on a VHS like my granddad recorded for me. I think he put the tape in too early. Because like there's like half an hour or so of football on before it or whatever, and then I remember like fast forwarding through all of that, and then catching like an advert for WrestleMania in between, and this very posh like voiceover man going WrestleMania, and I denied on Sky Sports. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Uh, biggest shock is hearing a wrestling show in the UK going on at nine and not fucking midnight, but you know. Oh god! Imagine having a actual wrestling pay per view happen when it's still PM and not freaking AM is such a unique thing. I couldn't imagine it. The only chance we'll get with that would probably be if Progress ever came back. But the amount of times that it'll get to it'll get to like eight o'clock and it'll be like, right, let's have a power nap for a few hours, and then before. Um, 12 o'clock, wake up, come downstairs, 
but then it backfired the time when I went to watch the Roy- a recent Royal Rumble and I didn't realise the event was starting at 12 o'clock. I thought it was starting at 1. So I missed AJ Styles versus Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn and I was really fucking annoyed about it because I love AJ Ooh. Styles. So t- turns out I never got better at it. So, <laughs> so apparently a big part of the 10 4 deal is that obviously we all got Raw in the UK. Uh, I don't think SmackDown was widely available yet, but uh, Sunday Night Heat was also a big part of the Channel 4 deal. That would be shown on uh, Channel 4. This is technically still a big show uh, where like stuff was happening, but the more we get into SmackDown, the more SmackDown will kind of take over the role that Heat used to have. And while uh, the Channel 4 deal will see through to like, uh, mid-2001, uh, after this pay-per-view, every subsequent pay-per-view show on Channel 4 will be heavily, apparently be heavily edited because apparently the people at Channel 4 who decided to make this deal hadn't actually watched wrestling in some time. And they thought they were getting someone akin to World of Sport. But they were so, so mistaken. If you don't do the Bit research, don't do the research, live with the repercussions. Mm-hmm. You sound like such a teacher there, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> says, you're, you're on time, you're wasting. Yeah. It's it's all that time it's all that time of being an adult. I now actually dispense advice rather than having it being given. So there's a reason why I've got grey hairs in the side of my head now. It's because I've taken on that teacher role of being wise and wistful with my wisdom. You can't see it, but right now I'm staring off into the distance as I say it just to really sell the effect. So <laughs> we'll get into the actual show itself. Uh, January 23rd, 2000, this went down in the iconic Madison Square Garden in front of 19,231 fans. You know, everybody's just kind of packed in there. You've got that really short entrance way. And they really, like, I think they're trying, actually, both the theme of, like, being in New York with also the theme of the road to WrestleMania. Because it's kind of a road, like, drawn on the, like, the floor between the, the entrance and the ring. And they've got, like, graffiti on the side of the walls and a giant taxi cab on... <laughs> on uh, the raft right over the entranceway and it felt weird but mind you these, for years they used to have a bloody taxi uh, whenever they came to the UK so I just I think I just heard WBC's various cities but I have to admit I love this entrance it's the sort of thing that I really miss um, is that you they WWF actually used to go really above and beyond in making it feel as distinctive as possible. So they've got it there on the road to WrestleMania. They've got it that there's a major street fight and they just, they get the stage to suit it so perfectly. And instead of struggling with the fact that there's a smaller entrance, they utilize it to their advantage. And it's actually really clever the way they um, go about it. And it just ends up being that, not only is this such a memorable pay-per-view, but the stage and the setting and the theme and the style reinforces it even more. And I think it just overall adds to a great package. And if we could have, this is why I always want to have returns of that sort of stage setting that really speaks to this um, pay-per-view itself, rather than the generic stuff that we get with a lot of them. This is, this is where it started from getting to see a stage like this and going, that is absolutely brilliant. Love it. Mm-hmm. I think, Mike, it's going to help this pay-per-view become so iconic as the fact that it's probably happening in an arena as famous as Madison Square Garden. And obviously New York is seen as the home of kind of WWE and 
New York fans are known to be some of the the loudest and most hardcore fans like you'll ever beat your you'll ever perform in front of. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, just kind of going back to what Sam said, the, the, it, it's a shame of what the, uh, the way it is now. That it's it's all kind of very sterile. I, I look back at like Backlash two thousand one with those big kind of arching, mm. thick, thick, mm-hmm. the big arching metal structures, and I mean, like you say the way that they've got this set up it fits so perfectly because like you say it's it's madison square garden it's the 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 home of wrestlemania i mean um and it's it's just such an iconic venue and it's like it's the hottest ticket in town without question back back in this time and it it just really amps everything up Mm -hmm. uh it's very rare that they would uh, deviate from this really short entrance. The only one time that they would do it is the show we just talked about a while ago, WrestleMania 20, where they had the longer ramp, which I think they mainly used because they were going to do the big Druids entrance for a Takers match. And I did like mm. uh, that style they had with the long ramp and the kind of screens were like buildings of New York behind uh, the wrestlers were coming out because during Kane's entrance, it made it look like all of New York was on fire. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was, it, the, that was awesome. I mean, looking looking at the garden again, like you say, Mania was the only one that had that longer ramp. If you that 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 iconic kind of short ramp is amazing. I mean, it's got that. It's got the moment of um, Cena in 08. Mm. Yeah, definitely. definitely. That, um, that, wouldn't have, that wouldn't have had the same effect if it was the long ramp. Mm-hmm. And. It's it's kind of good that they've yeah, just got like this weird like metal sheet where people kind of come out from behind it rather than uh, they had these weird gates. I remember at SummerSlam '98, and you could kind of see people coming a few seconds before they actually opened the gates for them. <laughs> and, uh, it, it, I've heard that even though like as good as iconic as a venue is for wrestling shows, you can actually get as many people in as you would for a usual wrestling show. Cause, like, you got nineteen thousand fans, obviously. Some years would probably pack more than for a big four pay per view, but I've heard also they they were well, they were able to charge more for tickets uh, because they only let a certain amount of people. In. I think I think like, it was being like forty or fifty dollars when they did like WrestleMania ten, and that was in like ninety four, right before WWE went on a downward spiral business wise. And you got to think what they're charging here in two thousand when they're just about to go public, and they've launched like literally this week. Uh, WWF New York has opened. Jeez. That's a flat, that's a throwback. Yeah, I felt very nostalgic at that point because, like, they it, it was it makes sense now that it had opened very recently because they pretty much went over to WWF New York. Pretty much, it felt like in between every single match, as if to really subtly sell it. I mean, it was almost to a level of WWE Network is nine ninety nine. Take advantage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with it, that. Yeah, just like as how thickly can you lay it on? Like, oh, WWF New York. I didn't know about that place. I missed the first free adverts, so I'm really glad you told me. Thank you. And are we actually going to have a match start at some point? So, <laughs> it's, yeah, you've nailed that there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's like WWF New York would become like synonymous in this area and this uh, era for like just cutting to there. It's like see all the fans that are there watching the show. And send in a random wrestler who you don't have anything for on that particular card to go and just stand there amongst the fans and look like they don't want to be there. And I think for a while after it became WWE, it got changed to the world. And uh, and, but then shortly after they would close down because apparently, so surprise, surprise, when on nights where there wasn't a wrestling show, not a lot of people felt the need to go to WF New York. 
and I've heard the menu was not particularly good either. That, 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 doesn't, that does not surprise me. <laughs> I'm, I'm very disappointed. I mean, this is a company that had its own dentist, its own dustman, its own fireman, and they somehow didn't have their own chef. Was Kane busy in concessions? Could he have not gone out and started cooking up some meals? Because <laughs> that would have gone down fantastically. As long as it's not Bastion Booger making my food, I'd be more than tempted, so... Well, we've got Midian on the roster. He went on to be, like, run his own catering company. Get Midian and he's not doing anything. He's <laughs> hopefully solving for being naked, Midian. I was going to say, yeah, as long as he's not naked. Yeah, that, that's not the type of hooters I was hoping to see. So um, that ain't happening, please. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't. It, it seemed like a good idea, but obviously it's in the middle of Times Square, which uh, the, the money to have a property at Times Square is apparently quite a lot. And obviously... WWE didn't really get the return on WF New York that they hoped for, but we'll dive into the actual card. And we've got JR and King on commentary. Well, almost uh, walked past the opening video package, which basically doesn't even talk about the Royal Rumble. This whole uh, hate package to come into the Royal Rumble before we have the pyro and everything. And the commentators welcome us. It's just all about Triple H versus Cactus Jack. And uh, basically, them like putting each other all like, well, they call you Cactus Jack the death match, they call you Triple H, the game, all that, and then it goes like, you're basically saying, you're very good, but you're not me. And basically saying what they're going to do to each other in the street fight, and I think like the Royal Rumble sells itself, but like a lot of the promotion around this, especially the last two or three weeks, has been about Triple H versus Mick Foley. It's it's quite strange um, to some degrees because nowadays, like the Royal Rumble for like the last um, f- fifteen years, I'd say has been an opportunity for unlikely wrestlers to be given an opportunity in main offense because um, the whole focus is supposed to be about the Royal Rumble itself. I mean, you wouldn't have likely have had. Chris Benoit challenging Kurt Angle at 2003, for example, if it wasn't for the fact that it had a strong Royal Rumble to rely upon. It says how well the story had been built of Cactus Jack versus Triple H, that instead of the Royal Rumble being being the main notice at the Royal Rumble, it's the street fight because it felt so perfectly uh, prepared. Like, you could watch this not knowing it's the Royal Rumble, it's because of the way that the package is done. And I think that's a good testament to the work put in by both Foley and Triple H beforehand that you're buying the Royal Rumble, but you're probably there for the street fight more than anything. Mm-hmm. Mike, uh, you got any thoughts on this, this opening package? No, I, I, I mean, definitely agree with, I uh, agree with that completely in terms of, like, I couldn't remember the running order of the card prior to watching it. And I, I was surprised when... Obviously, with the with such such a such an emphasis on on the street fight with Cactus Jack and Triple H, that the um, that that wasn't the main event. But I mean, in that day, I, I mean in that day, it was very much you've got the Royal Rumble, and the Royal Rumble is the main event. Nowadays, not necessarily. You generally you do generally see that but if there is a big match to go on, then more often than not, that will be. That will be the that will be the main event. Like I mean, classically, look at the look at the first year the the um, women's rumble was on. You didn't expect mm-hmm. it. You could argue yes, it, w- it was always going to be the main event, but you could also argue the main the men's main the men's royal rumble is the bit is the big attraction. 
And mm. it's it's one of those where you expect the you expect the rumble to go to be the main event, obviously the titular name, but it didn't need to be for this. But I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, because like we have had it in the past where the Royal Rumble match hasn't been the main event. I always find it weird when it isn't uh, the main event because like it's literally called the Royal Rumble. I remember '06 Mark Henry versus Kurt Angle main evented only because they were going to have Taker come out afterwards and destroy the ring, and so mm. also they didn't have the time to put it back up again. So I just put Angle's match on after the Rumble. That would be such an amazing Royal Rumble, though, that you have to throw them over the top rope, and there's no ropes, so you basically have four referees in each corner holding up the ropes so that you can actually throw them over it. Like just for the last, I'd totally watch it, but. <laughs> That one makes sense, and the only other one I reckon I can f- remember for definite was when it was Rock versus um, 20, CM Punk. 20, 20, 2013. I'm literally, I've literally just got the card out now because I was. I'm sure, I'm sure 2013 was um, Rock Punk as the main, but it made sense because mm. of the setup with the with the Rumble, obviously Cena winning, and then it being twice in a lifetime, as we know. Um, so it made, it made that one made sense, but yeah, as as we've said, you ex, you expect the rumble to be the centre point, but it, with this, it wasn't. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think actually they did it three years in a row. One time where like '96, it didn't make it. It was a uh, Bret Hart versus Undertaker, and that ended in a bloody DQ. You had Sean versus Sid main event '97 because it was like Sean's a big homecoming because it was in his hometown. I'm pretty sure the match, the casket match between him and Taker. Main evented in '98, and you know that ended with Kane setting the casket on fire, which I think they felt like, yeah, people like Austin, but we're not. Rory Rumble's not going to be able to follow a man literally been thrown in a coffin and set on fire. Just imagine that as every wrestler comes out, they have to walk around a burning coffin, and <laughs> it just it just gives this great image. You can just imagine like Gangrel coming out, and instead of coming out with, around the ring of fire, he just walks around the coffin three times and then spurts his blood out. And they'll be like, "I've done my part now. It's time for me to enter the ring." <laughs> which is which is weird because I don't think that's the reason that they didn't uh, main event uh, with the rumble. But I'm just thinking like. In 94, right before the Rumble, you had Taker technically kayfabe die in 94 and you still went ahead. But this time you think, this time we're actually killing him with fire. So this one, it was this, they've killed The Undertaker so many times, but enough about him. He's not even on this show. <laughs> <laughs> and talking about the Rumble, just one last thing before we go into the opening match. But I was talking about this on the Go Home episode of uh, the SmackDown Review is that I remember hearing, and I was, it's weird that this year's Royal Rumble could actually have fans, because I don't, it's hard to think that 2020 had a show we could have people at it, but I remember being around my friends there watching the 2020 Royal Rumble, and one of the guys there said that he spoke to somebody who said they weren't a big fan of the Royal Rumble, like the match, and we all instantly went, you're talking pish, that never happened, because like, it's hard to ever think, I don't think even the most cynical of wrestling fans can say they don't like the Royal Rumble. It seems to be that one thing a lot of fans can agree on. Even okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna make an analogy here. The Royal Rumble is like pizza and sex. <laughs> There's no such thing as a bad Royal Rumble. I'm not even going to argue with that one. To be fair, he had me at pizza and sex. He didn't have to even finish the analogy, <laughs> and I was completely in there. The only question was, 
which one was I going to get in my mouth first? But um, I completely 100% agree. Even if you don't enjoy elements of the rumble... You're still going to have a good time. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, the worst I had probably, I'm going to say, was the last rumble with Brock Lesnar. And that's because I have an issue with Brock Lesnar. But so, that was, the, that would, so that would have been 2020 then? Yeah. So yeah. So I, I, I have it that watching Brock Lesnar eliminate multiple people was frustrating and annoying the crap out of me. And I was at the time thinking this might be one of the worst rumbles I've ever watched. But Drew McIntyre onwards, it was fantastic. Yeah, exactly. And that's and, that. The, but that, and that was the point of it. To mm. like basically completely grind your hopes into dust to then build Drew up to be this fucking demigod, which he was at the time. I mm. won't say hopes. It grinded my um, enjoyment into dust. To yeah, the point okay, that I get that. I get that. I, I think kind of felt the same. if Drew had been eliminated by Brock, I think I would have actually turned the Royal Rumble off at that point because I would have believed that they would have just had Brock go through everyone, which would have just had me screaming into the embers in my pillow about how much I hate it and that sort of thing. But then the moment Drew eliminated Brock, I was like. Yes, I can finally enjoy this rumble. And then Edge comes out and I'm like, oh, do you know what? I could almost forget the shit I just sat through with Lesnar. And then two seconds later, I went, no, I haven't forgotten. But at least I've got Edge. So. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, you started the sentence off with the worst I've ever got. And like, I'm really glad you followed it up with an example of a Royal Rumble and nothing to do with pizza and or sex. <laughs> Going to go into the, the first match of the evening as Kurt Angle coming out to very loud booze. Uh, he's obviously still in this as the most celebrated real athlete. He claims he's undefeated. He's lost quite a few tag matches, never been pinned though, so he's t- clearing he is undefeated. And uh, the fans are booing on this because like, he's just a wrestler. He is boring. Boo! And then he also further adds fuel to the fire by basically insulting I, I just put my notes, local sports team, because uh, he's basically said, like, I'll be your champion because if we waited for your local sports team to bring on a title, you'd be waiting forever. And I, think it was, like, I, think it, I think it was the Knicks that he was, he was disrespecting there, if memory says me correctly. Yeah, I think so. My, my notes are basically Kurt, Kurt Angle cuts, 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 uh, cuts promo on crowd, slagging off everything. Just very standard, kind of. It's a very run-of-the-mill promo, isn't it? You, you mm. expect it. Yeah, and he's constantly talk about his mystery opponent. All of the fans start instantly chatting, we want Taz, because I think everybody knows that it's Taz. And uh, he just goes, remember, I know you're probably nervous about coming out and facing an Olympic gold medalist, but remember the three eyes, come on out and give it your all. And then the music hits. Who can stop the path of Cage? No, wait, that's the wrong music. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely the wrong music. There's no lyrics to it. <laughs> yeah. Can I, just, can I just also say that uh, Brian Cage's theme song, just FYI, worst theme song in AEW. Thank you very much. Just <laughs> fuck right off with that music. <laughs> you can't tell Brian Cage to fuck off. He, he's a machine and he'll destroy you and then probably tear his pecs, but he will try and destroy you briefly. So don't upset him because he will do dangerous things to you. So... Nice, guy, nice guy in person, though. Nice guy. Do you know what? Wouldn't even Here surprise me. I'm sure he is. I'm just saying his theme song is crap. But <laughs> I, I could, of course, because the actual music, as JR so uh, perfectly sums it up, it's Taz! 
is like literally as soon as the boom boom starts, the crowd just go metal because they know it's Taz. The flashing like orange symbol's been going on for weeks and weeks, mm. and like you've been hearing the and then every now and then you, it changes. They've had more looks like they put added in the the mood's about to change and who can stop the path of rage, which I now know why where they got the cage thing from, and then out comes Taz and just. Like, you talk about a reaction for a debut. I... He just looks like a killer, straight off the bat. Mm. That towel thing, you can definitely um, understand why future wrestlers like Samoa Joe and that sort of thing would take it on, because it just gives a real dangerous fighter edge to it. It's a very simplistic trick, but it just works so tremendously well. And I think Taz, considering that he's about the height of a Noompa Loompa, looks really intimidating with it, which is oh. even more impressive. He's not someone you want to piss off because he 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 he, do, he does fire. As I found out, as I've heard, I've not. Oh. Heard, no. <laughs> hey, he is a Noompa Loompa that could destroy me. There's no question about that. He could probably still sling me around the ring with major ease, but um. You can. There's a little bit of a size difference that's really noticeable straight away. However, I will say that when I originally watched this pay-per-view back in 2000, I had no idea the crowd was chanting, we want Taz. Somehow, I missed that all. So it wasn't ruined for me, and it was my first introduction to Taz. So as an actual first introduction, I will say that in this one, Taz looked like an absolute beast. And he was yeah. absolutely fantastic. And I am glad that in retrospect, that moment wasn't ruined for me because if I knew who Taz was and I could hear the crowd chanting, we want Taz, then I probably would have been felt a little let down. But because I didn't know him and because I couldn't hear the crowd, it was fresh. It was new and it was exciting to me. Um, and I do want to give a quick aside too, um, the confidence of Kurt Angle on the microphone while he's doing his promo is so impressive. He, he like, at, like you can almost see where MJF takes a little bit of it from because at times when they're when they're chanting at Angle, instead of like panicking or or like getting nervous, he do, he works with it. He he just naturally rolls with it and just takes it on and reacts to them, which is something that MJF is especially good at nowadays. As an example in comparison, not many people can do that. If they're getting rea- if they're getting reactions they're not prepared for, they will have a moment of panic. Kurt Angle, two months on the main roster, and he already looks like a relative veteran out in the ring when when on the microphone, and that is so impressive to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's only like, debuted two months ago at Survivor Series, and the development week on week is just incredible. And they announced on the Raw before this that you would have a, a mystery opponent at the Rumble. And I think if you're a like, more casual fan or if you're very young, you probably won't know about Taz. But if you're somebody who's smarter or who's like going online or reading dirt sheets, and you see, you hear a uh, mystery opponent at the Rumble, and then you see these symbols that have been flashing for weeks, you may immediately think Taz. And also, this is the, probably the perfect place to debut him because he's from Brooklyn, so he's kind of the hometown guy. And also, New York was kind of a similar crowd to the Philadelphia crowd that ECW would go because I think they started just kind of breaking in ECW in New York uh, as like time went on as ECW's popularity started to grow. Yeah, definitely. It was it was de- it was definitely a bit of a hotbed for um, 
for ECW, and I mean, like you say, it was it was just the, it was just the perfect place for him to debut, and the reaction that he got justified that. Mm-hmm. I remember this being like a total squash, like in the first like I don't want to say a minute. I think the first like, thirty seconds when Angle's like trying to leave on the outside, and then he gets some offense and like on Taz, I think he gets a, super, a one suplex, and on Taz, he immediately gets back up from. Yeah, uh, I mean, he get he gets that one to the out, he gets that one to the outside, and I mean. Well, like you're watching this back, like you say, I thought it was. A, I I remember it being a squash, mm-hmm. and for me, it was. It was a squash. Yeah, and then like there's a weird point where like Taz gets a three, and the right fans start to pop. Then referee does them all. Angle fits on the rope, but like, and I'm not this short. Should you really be having like three count? No, the fits on the rope kind of moments, and then you get the series of suplexes. You got that one where you have an overhead German, but. Angle goes to die, jump, but I think he jumps a bit too early, then they have to repeat it. And then he throws him like over I think it's the case of Kurt maybe getting a bit too overzealous when Taz wasn't quite ready to throw him yet. Yeah. And then you got the Taz fight over the kind of the T bone and then you lock in the Taz mission and Taz chokes out Angle in like three minutes fifteen. And like so yeah, it is a squash, it's a dominant debut and like I think it's believable for Taz given his kind of background. Uh, against somebody who, who with Kurt's background is a legit Olympic gold medalist, but is it is it just me that feels like the idea of like heavily debating whether or not that choke that he uses was legal or not kind of took away from like the impact? Get, I was joking. you beat you beat me to it, mate. I mean it, that that really pissed me off. It was like oh, it's it's an illegal move, and I'm watching it back, and I'm like no, no, it's really not. There's mm. there's there's fuck all wrong with it. It's it's like um. Just like it's kind of like, just like a rear naked choke, essentially that you see nowadays by people like Shayna Baszler. You'd see that from someone like Brock Lesnar with a legitimate fighting background, like you would have from Taz. And and I definitely agree that it was the it was to kind of give a summary for me. It was the right debut for Taz. It was the right result. It was the right performance. But it did get it. The commentary did take away from it slightly in terms of. It, it, they they didn't ham it up as big as it could have been. Like holy shit, Taz is a Taz is a frigging killer, which mm. he is, and he he should have been built up as. But that little that wasn't legal just took away from it, and it all stems from Jerry Lawler. I've got real issues with Jer- with Lawler, as as Scott well knows from the last pe- <laughs> the last couple of mi- things. You, you're preaching about. to the choir. You're preaching and, to the freaking choir. Oh, don't worry. Don't, don't don't worry. I've got I've I've got some some venom saved up for the rest of this pay per view. But oh, me I mean, <laughs> kind of overall, it was it was it was the good. It was it was the right showcase for Taz, but that took away, that little that little sidebar took away from it. I think that's probably the best way to. To summarise that, mm-hmm. I I feel like um, so one of the things that's always important for me when it comes to a pay per view or any event really is what the opening match is because to me, a lot of people think that the opening match basically means that it's the match they want to get rid of as quickly as possible. I disagree. To me, the first match on the card has to set the standard. I was going to say this; it sets the tone. The, yeah. the, the having. Worked, the crowd it, pops it, so quickly. Exactly, and I mean, for me, having worked in and around wrestling shows before, it gets like it can be coined as like the curtain jerker, and the curtain jerker isn't necessarily a bad thing because if you put out a shit match off the start, people are going to be like, "Well, this is going to be shit." Yeah. So okay. yeah, I, I don't subscribe to that view of 
the opening match is the one you want to get rid of. The the the, the, ma- the match you want to get rid of is a letdown match. Massive. Like, like the big mid, mid main event that is drained yeah. everyone. You want a little quiet match um, afterwards to allow a bit of a um, come a down to some it, degrees. It, it's a mid 2000s women's match. Yeah, unfortunately, it's a it's a it's a cliche, but it's true. The amount of times you'd see a big event where a huge match happens, like say for instance, Hogan versus Rock at WrestleMania 18. Straight away afterwards, they have the triple threat women's match, which is like basically treated as the piss break, despite the fact it's got Victoria, Trish Stratus, and I think Jazz it was at the time. And then it goes into the main event. It was always placed in that come down uh, come down moment. Now, with this, not only did this match pop the crowd huge and get the energy going, but um, it's, like you said, it set the tone throughout of excitement, what could happen, etc. But it also was quite, it really set the tone in terms of really quick match that rushed through a little bit. And also, I feel like there's... So you're saying about taking the sting a little bit out of, well, taking the rush out of Taz's victory to some degree. If you, if you notice, straight after the victory, Taz is already going out of the ring and the focus is on angle afterwards. And it's almost like a subtle reminder to the entire crowd and the audience watching at home who the real star is. As I say, angle's the biggest star there, yeah. yeah. I get that. But it also it wouldn't surprise me, and th- and I have no proof to back this up whatsoever. It just it wouldn't surprise me at all if during the match, Vince McMahon almost called an audible and said, "Lorna, say that it was a choke code or something like that," because Lorna's yeah. an idiot. He ain't gonna cut. He ain't gonna be smart enough to think of that. Um, but he's a yes man who's gonna follow what he's told to say. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if Vince was like, "Actually, I'm not liking the look of this Taz um, King." Start saying that it was a choke code because you wouldn't put someone over that huge and instantly put and already plan to pull it back beforehand. Beforehand, it's almost like a last minute reaction. So I feel so that to me. I wouldn't be surprised if that was one, an audible call in order to put the focus back on angle. Because then you notice that the rest of the night, there's several scenes going back to showing him, um, suppose he's still being undefeated. There's yeah. no mention of, there's no, there's no notice of Taz. You don't go back to Taz and get his response. And then by the next month, Taz is an also ran. He's basically completely useless. So I feel like something happened. It wouldn't surprise me if during this match that there was like an audible called and they completely changed the game plan because JR seemed a little bit surprised at the change um, at the time. And Jerry was the one who was pushing for saying, oh, it's a chokehold. It's a chokehold. He's, he's still undefeated. It, it just smells a little bit off to me. And the whole camera angles, the usage, uh, the fact that Taz was instantly taken out of the ring, something went was fishy about that. And watching it back 20 years later, it's a lot more obvious Whereas back then, I would not have clicked at all about the fact that, yeah, it has won, but Angle is the focus. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't yeah. disagree with that at all. Yeah, I, at first, I remember the first couple of times I watched this, I didn't like the idea of the Angle like, stretcher, like, far as I like to go from Taz. I kind of softened on it like in later viewings of it, because I think they're trying to at least, I like to see, look at it as like they're trying to like see how... We've been hiding with this guy's a legit Olympic gold medalist. 
and despite his like natural ability in the last few weeks in SmackDown, he's been like getting wins like by like fluke means to keep his supposed unbeaten streak going. And then this guy who well, some people the people in the building knew, but oh, quite a few people watching it probably didn't know, has just come in here and like killed him to the point he needs like to get like stretchered out. Then I thought they're they're probably trying to build up that I think they already planned to do the stretcher job. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do I, I do agree. Like what took away for me is like Angle later on. Like I think they're trying to play off as him just being delirious and like because he like still doesn't know what happened. He's still claiming he's undefeated. Like oh, it was a joke. It was a joke. That means I'm I'm still undefeated. And then Lawler backing it up really sent mixed messages about what you think about what the company at least thinks about uh, Taz now. In preparation with, I watched a couple of different like segments talking about Taz's debut. One from JR's podcast and one from Bruce Pritchard. And like, it, it all, what's been mentioned is the the point where they kind of bought, almost botched the suplex. Like Kurt kind of jumps a bit too early, and Taz got kind of talked to by Pritchard and Gerald Briscoe the next day at Raw, basically like asking him about the the suplex. Basically saying like either, basically they, like Richard sums up as basically said like either like do that stuff like safely or don't do it at all because like we don't want like people getting hurt and like because they had big still had big plans for Angle mm. and like, apparently Taz might saw this as them basically trying to change his style or like basically when it really was a misunderstanding and like Jr seemed a bit more insane when he talked about it on his podcast talking about how Kurt could be a bit reckless at times. And he says it takes two to do like to put together a move. So and he like puts across his Kurt just being overzealous. And like both of them both agree on the fact that Taz could get in his own head. I think Taz, when looking back on his debut, he's got in his own head so much that he doesn't even like his own debut that much. That's, a, that's gotta be gutting if you've had what feels like could have been a tremendous debut that should have set you up. And you can't even look on it, look back at it with pleasure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's got to be gutting. Absolutely gutting. And I actually feel a bit sorry for Taz um, actually now, because why beforehand I thought that it was um, a case where it was probably backstage that had messed around with it. It sounds like Taz also had something put in his head and he didn't have confidence in his own ability to some degrees to be able to keep to his guns, which would probably have impressed Vince more. I think if mm-hmm. dependent, cause Vince likes people who fights back, but because he instantly like bent over a little bit and was like, I'm sorry. And that sort of thing, it probably instantly changed from this guy's a killer to this guy ain't it. And I feel, I feel quite gutted for get for Taz now because that, brief moment and that um, honest mistake between two wrestlers who were just very enthusiastic probably ended up being the beginning of the end for him unfortunately yeah and like I think it was on it was JR who said that some people in the locker room didn't like Taz not just because he was feasible but because like he got this like big showcase in his debut and because obviously he wasn't very tall and obviously like the way it had always been According to JR, is like there was always big guys getting pushed, and then there were some people who were worried that suddenly, uh, with lights of Taz coming in, and some of the other smaller guys that came in after him, they were worried about like suddenly these smaller guys were getting opportunities instead of them. So, like again, it just shows like the paranoia that was running through like locker rooms back then, which is like 
and yet some people will moan about today, like, oh, people are too nice to each other. Like, yes, I imagine that. Mm. God forbid people actually want to support one another. I mean, ironically, it sounds like if if Taz had been 10 years later, probably wouldn't have had that issue and could have had a much better future because that was round about the time that smaller wrestlers were already starting to be given more opportunities by that point. Eddie had already been given an opportunity. Benoit had been given an opportunity and it was going to start turning into Daniel Bryan, CM Punk, etc. Um, Taz, unfortunately, was ahead of his time. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So uh, we spent a lot of time on Max. It really didn't get given a lot of time. So we'll move on to a backstage interview with Michael Cole interviewing the Hardys and Terry Reynolds ahead of uh, the Hardys uh, tables match against the Dudleys. We see the recap from Raw where the Hardys were put through a table and then we see on SmackDown when the Hardys got back at the Dudleys. And uh, it's basically, this uh, this segment basically sums up why didn't the Hardys get a... Like, why are the Hardys mainly focused on like their in-ring stuff and not on their promo ability? And it's because of this, because I've even put my notes, Hardys can cut a promo to save their life. The most, the funniest one, for all the wrong reasons, is Terry Reynolds getting talking about how excited they are to go out there and teach the Dillies a lesson. And Jeff Hardy, and he's very thick, Caroline accent, Terry, no! Like, you're not going out there. That was, that was so awful. Oh, that was I mean, the, ho- the, ho- the, whole, the whole segment was just, it was completely throwaway. It was completely pointless. And it was just like, okay, you're not coming out with us because the Dudleys are violent. Fine, whatever. It didn't need to be there. Yeah, I agree. Didn't need it at all. You could have easily just had JR, Sun- Sunny Say, as they were coming out. Um, Terry's, uh, not coming with, Terry's not coming with them. But we've, re- we've, we've received word from backstage that Terry Reynolds won't be with them due to the violence of... Um, the Dudleys, and then go straight into um, Bubba and Devon cutting on the crowd. Yeah, because then that actually plays to the Hardy strengths of being really good in the ring, and doesn't show the yeah, and show their weaknesses. Like it, it shouldn't be so difficult to decide. Oh, let's accentuate their positives, which is that they're really good in the ring and get great reactions, and let's ignore their negatives and not put it up front. I mean, it's it's what Paul Heyman used to do in ECW all the time. It was his go-to mantra, accentuate the positives, hide the negatives. And instead, the Hardy Boys kept on being put in positions where they're supposed to do um, promos, which they're not suited for. Matt Hardy's gotten better, fair play mm-hmm. to him, um, probably because he basically broke his mind. Um, Jeff is pretty much exactly like he's always been. He's never going to be great on the microphone. And it's especially painful when you see in comparison the Dudley boys, who were some of the best heat magnets ever. Like, there were times in ECW where they almost instigated riots because they were so horrendous on the microphones to the crowd. They were just so nasty and cruel. And despite the fact that they used a similar thing to Kurt Angle where they had to insult local sports figures, which I'm sure is either just coincidence or the lack of imagination of WWE. Um, Despite that, they're still really good at it and get the heat and it gets the crowd involved straight away. Let the Duddy boys do the heat. The Hardy boys will get um, the following from that. All they have to do is go in and prove that they're strong workers and willing to battle for it. And they did that. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I think the, the thing about the Hardys, you kind of said, I was thinking that 
like Jeff's still not that good, whereas Matt would get better over the years. But I think at this point they're two still very young and inexperienced when it comes to like cutting live promos, whereas the Dudleys come to the ring and instantly like the public's still stuttering. But I think where that's just that's that part of their gimmicks kind of on the way out right now, and like that's been taken over by the fact that they're the guys who like using tables, but. They get some serious heat by mentioning a, a baseball player called John Rocker. The crowd boos. G1 said John Rocker should be the new mayor of New York. So I looked up who John Rocker was, and he's not a very nice man. To uh, sum up, he, he was a baseball player who, around this time, said some very racist and very homophobic things about the city of New York when asked if he would ever play in New York for any of the major teams. Uh, the, the quote. This is a quote from him. So, no, this is not me here. This is what he said. Quote, when asked, when asked if he would ever play in New York, he said, I'd retire first. It's the most hectic, nerve-wracking city. Imagine having to take the seven train to the ballpark, looking at who you're riding with. Some some kid from Beirut with purple hair next to some, insert a homophobic slur here that I won't repeat, with AIDS, next to some dude who just got out of jail for the fourth time, right next to some 20-year-old woman who's got four kids. It's depressing. The biggest thing I don't like about New York City is the foreigners. You can walk an entire city block in Times Square and not hear anybody speaking English. Like, good lord, man. I was going to say, I've literally just gone on John Rocker's Wikipedia and I've re- I was reading that quote as you as you were saying it. That's fucking horrendous, man. I know, like, people often use the excuse of it was a different time, but this was, this was like the 2000s. It wasn't a different time. That's just, there's just no no need for it and i mean he made that quote on december the 27th 1999 mm-hmm. so, the, so the dudleys are, are genius in using that mm-hmm. to generate that kind of heat and i mean it translated straight or it translated straight away and i know obviously with the match itself it was you could you could kind of coin that whether the hardies were just going after them straight away because of it being there's a rivalry there or they're also being that little bit of fire from how bad their promo was i mean bad in a good way um but yeah i mean it's it's wrong but it worked yeah like i'm on john brocker's wikipedia page he's got a, a section on his wikipedia page dedicated controversial to controversies it's just titled controversies <laughs> like when when you've got that whole section dedicated to you on your wikipedia page you know you're a prick you know? yeah. I, I mean, um, he's got controversies, and it's got two sections. It's got controversial statements, and then also steroid use. So, a real nice guy. <sighs> yeah, I mean, unfortunately, he probably would have fitted in in the wrestling society down the 80s and 90s, but that's probably. no excuse for being a horrendous human being. And being I think, yeah, I, it's... To set, like the Dudley boys are very good at generating heat. You'll notice that what they did was that they didn't repeat or utilize anything that John Rocker actually said. They just used his name, so they sort yeah, of curtailed around of that, it. They, they 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 inferred it. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's that line, and they actually played that line extremely well between um, being heels and being despicable human beings which this john rocker is i mean the fact that we've all had to look on wikipedia to look who the fuck this guy is shows that he has no positive contributions to the world apart from a good promo by bubba ray dudley i mean yeah. what, uh, 
piece of shit. So that's we've given him more attention than he actually deserves. I was going to say, let's move on. Let's move on to the match. Let's talk yeah. the match. We spent more time yeah. talking about him than the Taz Kurt Angle match. I think was given. So we'll move on. Yeah, the Hardys come out as a hot start. Uh, the the mega point of you need to put your opponent offensively through a table. They can't fall through a table or something like that accidentally, which they will come up later on. Uh, they've introduced chairs like early into the match, and then there's a spot that Matt sets up using a ladder, which I put in my notes: tables, ladders, and chairs. This will never work. <laughs> I, I actually put early precursor to TLC chair used on Bubba by Jeff and ladder by Hardy Boys. And like, uh, as soon as both of those moments happened, I was like, "Oh, this feels inspirational." This moment, I'm, I was like, "I'm looking at these three elements. I mean, these can't go together." You imagine someone's you imagine someone's stiff enough to see my pay per view around these three things. I've or, a, or a match. Yeah. Or a match. That's mind blowing. Do you know what? I think you could retire on that. <laughs> and there's a bit where it looks like Jeff's gonna go through a table right very quickly, but Matt kinda of flips the table over before mm. Jeff can go through it while Jeff is still in like midair, which is like timing wise is like very important. Otherwise I would have fucked up the rest of the the match or like the spots that they had planned probably and then like yeah I think there's a spot where Devon tries to stop Matt from climbing up the ladder to set up the, the spot to put Bubba through the table but Devon gets knocked back and they're too the, the ladder's set up too close to the barricade so Devon I think falls right into a fan and then he has a seven match with the, the fan as he's kind of trying to still trying to sell being pushed off the ladder I love the fact that the very early on, they're already putting across not just the importance of trying to put someone through a table, but preventing your own partner being put through a table. It's a very small detail, but I think by having Matt save Jeff by flipping the table weight, having it that Devon does the same to save Bubba, it shows that preventing going through the table is just as important as putting your opponent through it because um, of the fact that the moment it happens, you're already at a disadvantage. So by utilizing those small little moments, it really builds up the importance of it. And it utilizes the tag team setup a lot better as, as well, I feel. So those little moments, I feel, were really vital to keep in the early parts of the um, match. And I think they have a more positive impact later on because it reinforces everything that's going on. And I really want to give a bit of attention to those two moments because they're little psychological moments that could be easily missed, but subconsciously builds the matchup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally get it. You got Jeff like running along the barricade, and then Bubba just throws a table in his face, but then <laughs> Bubba gets knocked down with some very sick-looking, unprotected. Chair something like right on the, the skull, and then they do like the Hardy do like the light drop splash combination on to to Bubba. They sit that's the first table and first member of the team put to a table. But the thing is, it's been set up. The focus is on Matt on the table. You can see Matt looking off camera, and then just when the initial spot, you see like a, a replay from a different angle. But then the initial spot is Matt jumping, and then from out of nowhere, you see just Jeff flying in as well. Like, Oh, make me for Hardy. <laughs> <laughs> two, two things I will say, and like I meant to mention this slightly earlier in terms of when you mentioned about TLC and it'll never work. Um, and this just it's quite a funny story and it's always stuck with me. I remember like when I was a lot younger and obviously I was watching 
watching wrestling and my mum said my mother said my mother said to me she was like oh, it's mother's day coming up i think i need some tlc and i went what tables ladders and chairs <laughs> and like and apparently I, I still remember it now and i was so deadpan about it because that was what i needed tlc as not tender loving care <laughs> and um just on you saying about the um like the table throw i was like how the fuck did that table not break like there was some force driven behind that Knowing how easily WWE tables break, how the fuck did his face not go through that table? I it, turns out he has a, it turns out he has a soft head, so because <laughs> of all the falling he's done. But um, I, I, I'm sorry, I love the idea of you saying to your mum about tables, ladders, and chairs because I'm pretty sure at the time there was actually a video out called Tables, Ladders, and Chairs. So if you went at church, you could have legitimately gone and bought the VHS and give it to her, and she'd just be like, "Fuck off, Mike." So. It's a, and again, mate, legitimate story. I, 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 to a degree, I wish I was lying. <laughs> to a degree, but on the set, on the same side of things, I'm like, it's too fucking funny not to be, not to, not to say. <laughs> oh, that is inspired. Oh, I love yeah, that. Yeah, true, true story. True story. Imagine <laughs> <laughs> the chair shots from Bella. Like Bella takes some time on the outside the ring to kind of like sell the chair shots in the table spot. To which King has the, the line, I think it's one of his better lines of the night, but it's still not even that good. It says, Bubba's eyes are Bubba's eyes are glazed over and that's not from eating donuts. <laughs> <laughs> just, oh, it's just classic. It's just classic King being a dick, isn't it, for dick's sake? Yeah. Like, God yeah. forbid he can actually make um, a worthwhile contribution to the conversation without trying to sound funny. Um, and unfortunately, he just ends up sounding like a prick. Um, but it's also quite, it's disconcerting a little bit to some degrees to have them so nonchalantly mentioning about, oh, Bubba's probably got a concussion. And you think, like, that doesn't age at all well. Like, watching nowadays, like, those moments you can feel every chair shot, which is unprotected, like, would be... Oh, man, it's, yeah, not, not nice to watch, is it? No, especially, like, because they, like, Bubba was getting some vicious shots to the head. So he he was not protecting himself at all, and he took probably the most punishment um, several times. And yet, ironically, later on when he goes when he um, goes for a table, it was the most protected his head was, even though he's falling off a balcony. Sorry to throw spoilers in, but it is just strange. So, mm-hmm. and like again, you had to reinforce the fact you have to put them through a table because uh, both parties go through tables, but while they're trying to put Devon through it, so that goes for a dive. Devon moves, uh, Matt goes to the table, and then Devon has to suddenly move, like, look at the fastest Devon's ever moved, because Jeff is just <laughs> flying again out there, right, just doosh, and just kind of has a forward roll in midair and goes to the table, which must have been confusing to the fans there who didn't have to hear, like, the, the commentators explain the rules, who probably thought, wait, is that the match over already? Um, I think what I, it's one, I, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but Jerry Lawler was actually helpful in this situation because he represents all idiots around the world so he makes sure that it's explained so that everyone can understand it and to be fair i like to think that the new york audience is more intelligent than jerry the king lawler i mean there's there's going to be some outliers unfortunately not everyone's perfect but like the fact that the referee doesn't call for the bell and he motions for the match to continue should have been hopefully was enough of an indication at that point for the crowd to go right okay they haven't actually been put through so therefore it continues but as an image alone the 
straight after one another, Matt and Jeff attacks, missing, and Devon escaping. That, it sounds weird, that set piece has always stayed with me. It's one that I remember from this pay-per-view quite a lot, and it's one of the moments I was most looking through, forward to, because it, despite the fact it's a really obvious setup in retrospect, it's done quite smoothly, so it's not obvious. So you're like, right, Matt's going to get the victory. Nope, Devon's moved. And then when Devon's moved, Jeff comes flying out of nowhere, which by this point he's done twice. So basically every <laughs> now and again, it just looks like Jeff flies in from the side of your screen. So it's like you just suddenly got a 3D effect coming in uh, and then completely misses, crashes through. And I think it, it's another moment that is really good at explaining how the match works, similar to Matt trying to uh, move in the table way, similar to Devon moving the table way, etc. It's these little moments that for a first-time match is actually really vital for explaining the rules and making it obvious for future. And it's these little bits that are unfortunately missed in modern table matches i mean nowadays you have you could have the big show accidentally step through a table and it turns out he's lost because it seems his foot is an offensive move uh at least when gravity is involved um, i think i think the offensive move rule has been done away with and i mean one thing i will say about the rules in this match that really fucking threw me was why wasn't bubba eliminated yeah like why why you that's, the, that, that's, that's the one kind of bit of continuity that really pissed me off. I was like, well, why the, I, I, and I, I understand that Bubba coming back in if he was eliminated, but the, and then obviously, like, I just got confused. I just got mm-hmm. confused. Yeah, because uh, like I think they did a, a match, a similar style match, it was like a three way where they get a, yeah Jeff involved, where he replicates some of the spots from this match, like it's a virus duo too. Where it was Jeff, Bubba, and Spidey against Three Minute Warning. I think in that match they had a thing where if you got put to the table, you were eliminated. Oh, right. Now I'm with you. To be honest, when, when Mike was originally starting and saying about that, I was like, I have no idea what you're on about and you're making me confused. But now I understand what you actually mean. Like, it wasn't a proper elimination match because they didn't have to leave. It's, it just turns out that they could get involved again, um, which... It's a fair point. I mean, the rules for table... It's stupid. Yeah, but then... There's no way around it. But then, yeah, you'd, if, if that was the case, you would obviously have it that Matt or Jeff would have gone through the uh, tables first instead so they can have the heels in control and that sort of thing. But what's frustrating is that it shows how many times the rules change because in 2002 at Survivor Series, you would have had it that in the three-on-three match, every time someone got put through a table, they had to leave. And then you've got another example, like, say, Royal Rumble 2004, where it's Dudley Boys first Batista and Ric Flair. They only have to put one person through a table to win the match. So you just literally have Batista suddenly spine-buster Devon through, and the match is over. The lack of consistency in that is really frustrating. I think if they had kept to this style of having it both members have to be put through but they can still be involved in the match if they kept that consistency going on i feel would have made the tables that, yeah it would have it would have it would have made more sense it's just that it's just that level of consistency in there and i mean but, overall the i mean i mean the match itself was it, it, it was it was a kind of there wasn't anything in there that really stood out to me like holy shit this is good and i mean looking at this it went on for just over 10 minutes it didn't for me personally it didn't overstay its welcome there was a good couple of spots in there i was mm. a big hardy boys fan back in the day and i still am good to see them win 
all in all, really, for me, it was, yeah, it was, it, it was one of those that it wasn't standout, but it was pretty good and I enjoyed it. There was no part of it where I thought, well, there was a couple of parts, obviously, where I went, kind of unprotected headshots and things like that. But overall, mm. I was a bit like, yeah, okay, that was good. I enjoyed that. That was inoffensive. Yeah, mm-hmm. the pacing is tremendous all the way throughout. It's pretty much non-stop. You've got yeah. it. It doesn't outstay its wec- welcome at any point. Um, the action is really good. And he, I, to me, I would say that I actually think it's actually quite an underappreciated match because you always have it that whenever people talk about the great feuds between the Hardy Boys, the Dudley Boys and Edge and Christian, they either start at No Mercy 99 with the ladder match or they start at WrestleMania 2000 with the triangle ladder match. This match doesn't actually get mentioned that often. And I think in actuality, it's a, ve- it's a very impactful one for what, how they continue from there because this was the first ever time you would actually see a table ladder and chair actually utilized in the same match in a method that made sense and it was like starting the starting the um getting the ball rolling a little bit and they made it a little bit more noticeable in the ladder matches and then eventually transitions into the tlc so i feel like for the pacing of this match i think for the chemistry between the dudley boys and the hardy boys and i think the support that the Hardy Boys got because at this time um, I mean I remember when um, me and Scott were reviewing Smackdown um, before Armageddon the Hardy Boys still weren't that popular they weren't getting large cheers even when they were facing the New Age Outlaws but in this match they they've got the crowd behind them. You're watching the development of the Hardy Boys becoming the popular team they are and I feel that them as the babyface heroes in this match probably had a positive impact because they battled so hard against these nefarious heels who were violent and vicious. So um, I actually feel this match is relatively underrated in comparison to some of the other matches the two teams and Edge and Christian would have in the future. I mean, I, I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, would you, I'm sure Scott's probably off the same opinion. Yeah, I think this does get kind of in some regards. And like this, this with the like the hot debut of Taz at the start, I think really helped set the tone for the the next couple of matches. Suddenly can't can't really follow until we get to the, the street fight. I was going to uh, say, are we are we getting on to the next one? Because I've got I'll, I've got views on this next one. I'll, I'll briefly sum up the uh, the, the closing, but I think part of the reason you can't have an elimination in this one is because like because they only got ten minutes, so I think it was easier for them to just keep everybody in so they could get to the spots they wanted uh, yeah, to do. Yeah, that makes sense. And because they only get ten, 10 minutes. Like as soon as like one guy goes to deal, he doesn't really get that much chance to really sell a lot of like the effects of going to deal because he has to get back. Like Bubba, soon after the Hardys put themselves to tables, Bubba has to get back in the ring so he can powerbomb Matt through a table, and then they go they drive both Hardys like, through to the the other entrance, the entrance kind of on the opposite end of the uh, off the exit, and uh, they set like four tables. And poor Bubba, even though he's already went to a table, he gets hit with a chair by I think Jeff and goes through two more tables before they have to eventually do the spot with Steve on the LMA him. And Jeff also does the thing where he takes the shirt off and also you get a bigger cheer from the female fans as would be kind of the Hardys thing. And the Hardys win. And like Jeff is kind of being carried back to the to ringside by Matt so they can celebrate because Jeff just looks dead. <laughs> and Jeff looked out a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's just done. And like from here on, this is the Dudley's thing. The Dudley's like no whole D one get the tables. I think from here onwards, this is where it picks up because this is the Dudley's become the tables guys from this point onward. And 
you can like, kind of debate whether or not like there's more where uh, where they helped or hindered the WWE just being known as the table guys. But I think it for a big part kept them memorable. So like that's the big part of this match. And me and Sam, like you mentioned, we had they had their matches on SmackDown with the Outlaws, where as the weeks went on, the Hardys become became more popular, especially when we watched that cage match that they had. Mm. And then as the weeks go on, like they get a victory here in Madison Square Garden, and they're o- where they're over. And we're, like contrasting that when I was watching like the No Mercy ladder match, yeah, both teams kind of got a decent reaction. But you know, people at the tournament, the the Terry Invitational, and they were all chanting Terry during matches. So like during the ladder match, over the course, that by the end of it, everybody, like, the whole crowd, is giving them a stand ovation with a crowd suddenly realize that like, these guys, like these are the guys right here, and like. So this, is, this does go down as a big moment in both teams' careers. Uh, Definitely. 10 minutes, 18, in case anyone was curious, that's how long this match got. Uh, Angle, the, the thing with Angle happens next, so we'll move on, because we, we talked about that already. He's confused, thinks he's undefeated. <laughs> and then we get... Remember, uh, for all the wrong reasons. The, we got Mike's horrible. favourite bit. Uh, I was going to say, should I take the floor on this scene, as I've got such strong views? Go. <laughs> I have no issue with that. I've got a point to make here. It's a, it seems weird, but I've been watching SmackDown lead up to this, so I'll, I'll make this point right here. So you have King coming out as a master of ceremonies. He urges the judges, right? Our judges are Sergeant Slaughter, Tony Guerrilla, the fabulous Miller, Johnny V, uh, Andy Richter from the uh, from the Conan O'Brien, who looks thrilled to be there, despite the fact he probably got the better gig of most celebrity guests that the base ever had. And, and King even, even con- once or twice during the contest uh, openly flags them for not reacting to anything. And then uh, we get Freddy, classy Freddy Blassie, who actually gets a decent reaction. Because I think people look at them like, oh, it's him from those black and white intro packages. <laughs> and that. But, see, on the SmackDown before the Rumble, the Edge came out for a match with Gangrel, who had Luna East Connor, who's obviously in the contest. Gangrel, that is not, uh, Luna, that is not Gangrel. I don't want to see Gangrel in this contest. But they, like, there's rumours that Edge is a judge in this, uh, this Miss World Rumble contest. And so you had Luna basically try curry favour with Edge to get an advantage in the contest, which then brought every woman from the contest out. And even and the segment ended was basically Mae Young trying to force herself onto Edge. Oh, that makes sense now. <laughs> that makes sense, because later on, when JR's like, oh, uh, Edge almost got Mae Young's tongue down his throat, I was like, what the fuck did I miss? You know, when did this happen? And I was kind of glad I missed it, and I'm definitely glad I missed it now. So I'm sitting here, yeah, what definitely. You just come in like, where the fuck is Edge? <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Reg. Poor bastard. <sighs> but, but, mate, you, you said you had thoughts. I'll, I'll, the floor is yours, sir. Right. So the notes that I've got, and I've, I've kept them very, very brief because this whole segment is just uh, right. I get it was a different time. I get that this was the norm, but fuck me, it was awful. So you've got Ivory, Terry, Jacqueline, BB, Luna, Luna Vachon and the cat. Ivory looks fucked off. She doesn't want to be there very much in her character that she is better than the kind of the women's division that is just tits and ass. Mm-hmm. Same with Luna. Luna deserved far better in all of this. They all come out. They all kind of get down to their like swimwear and whatever. Um, Lu- this is going to sound very bad, but Luna feels very out of place because she's not the stereotypical kind of woman at that time, and she shouldn't have been there because she deserved better than that. 
The cat then takes off all of her stuff and she's wearing a bubble wrap fucking bikini. And it's like, what? And obviously the king being the dirty pervert that he is, is absolutely loving it. He's got a raging stiffy. And then Mae Young comes out. And the note I've made is she seems absolutely smashed. Like, I mean, she looks like she is absolutely hammered. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Like, even when she's delivering her promo, I know she's old at this point, but what the fuck is going on? Who who allowed this? And and then she proceeds to, this is exactly what I've written, Mae Young whips titties out and Henry has to cover her. And I'm like, I, I, honestly, everything about this just pissed me off. The, the, the degradation of everything, Lawler being a cunt as per usual. And then, uh, I mean, the only kind of saving grace is that Mae Young won. That's funny. It adds an element of humour to it. I get that. But the whole thing, just fuck off. It didn't need to be there. It took time away from Taz and Kurt Angle. It took time away from the tag match before. I mean, I'm glad it didn't take any time away from them. It could have taken time away from the match after. But what the... Oh, my God. Just everything about it is awful. And you look back at it and it doesn't age well at all. At all. Yeah. Yeah. There was a little bit ivory. I mean, I felt so bad for her, you know. Ivory and Luna deserved so much better than that. I, uh, on the Raw before this, they had a segment with all the competitors where they kind of announced, uh, announced the match, uh, the, the match, the contest, and King's interviewing each woman. And Ivory, after a couple of interviews, Ivory just takes the mic off of King and calls him a pervert, to which King says, and your point being? <laughs> He's the and she are like, so, on contrary, and she, go, she calls the fan service and says she wants nothing to do with it, which led to a funny moment, I thought, when Luna and Jacqueline kicked in front of her and went, hey, we've got to do this, so you're doing it as well. And yet, like, Jacqueline seemed weirdly out of those three the most, like, like she decided, like, fuck it, if I'm going to do this, I want to win it. And then Luna comes in. Yeah, that, I, did, that, I did think that with Jacqueline. She, she was another one of the ones that I thought... She doesn't need to be there. She's actually a good wrestler. But like you say, she was the only one of the three that actually went, you know what? Fuck it. I think with Jacqueline, the thing is, is that she's had previous where she's had the competitions with Sable, where she's done the swimsuit um, challenges. Where yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so she's got that history of appearing in it because of her competitive side, and she and she also tries to enjoy it, but she's also a good wrestler at the same time. So she makes sense in terms of having that balance. Luna did not suit being there at all. Um, it really was out of character for her, and in in actual fact. It's a little bit creepy that from the sounds of it, she was forced to do it. Um, yeah. Ivory, being reluctant to participate, um, could actually be a bit of an interesting character beat, considering that not too long afterwards, she joins the right to censor. This could technically be in character the moment that broke her. I mean, funny enough, like Scott, you recently did um, the article talking about how Ivory deserves a lot more respect. And, I, when I first, this was the first time I'd ever seen Ivory, so I thought she was just uh, being a bit miserable. But in like twenty years later, knowing the history of her and what she had done, it feels even more disrespectful that an actual good woman wrestler was forced into doing this. And is she's angry? Luna's angry, and it makes sense completely. The only ones who seem to enjoy it. Um, in terms of who were competing, really, were Terry, 
BB, the cat, and Mae Young. Now, Terry, she can't wrestle. She has nothing to contribute apart from being um, a pretty face. So she is going to enjoy that sort of thing. BB, who nearly popped out of her um, bloody dressing gown when she walked into a ring, she isn't an in-ring wrestler. She is basically there for looking pretty. At one point, I swear I actually saw her giving evils to Terry. So that was a little bit interesting, but not really that important. And the cat, well, she just flashed her tits at the last pay-per-view. So we already know she's an exhibitionist. Um, Jerry the King Lauder, pretty much, I'm surprised he kept his microphone in his hand. But then that's probably because his other hand was busy um, because he was completely cringy through it. Um, I was actually eating lunch during this time, and I'm not going to lie, the moment that Mae Young referred to her puppies, I was no longer hungry. Um, The best part of this might have actually been the reaction from the other contestants. Like, for instance, there's a moment where Mae Young has her top off and goes near the cat, and the cat is basically just stood there screaming in horror. And it was so over-the-top and ridiculous and painful but it was the only shining light was seeing those ridiculous reactions. And the match I think actually probably got impacted the most, I'm going to say, will probably actually turn out to be the tag team titles match. Because considering it was a match that had a month's worth of build-up... Oh, it no, had... no, no, it fucking didn't. And oh, I'm did going to bring that up when we get to it. I'm fucking raging about this. But I'm oh. sorry to cut into your point. Oh, no, sorry. Because I, I swear I heard that they won the match after Armageddon. That's what I thought I heard. So I thought it was like a major build-up. Was it, was it only like, what, a couple of weeks or something like that? Oh, or? Hang on, you're jumping the gun. You're jumping the yeah, gun, Sam. Hey, he's got my attention, Mike. He's got my attention. So now I'm curious. So Pause I'm the attention, mate. We're not there yet. we got to get through the next match that I thought was... I'll, I'll just, I'll say my piece here. Like, one or two things. One, yeah, Luna, I agree, looked very awkward. And her her entrance theme was clearly dubbed because you couldn't hear King talking about her when she came to the ring as he, as you could for other contestants. Uh, BB, as soon as her name was said by King, uh, you hear JR last one, Barbara Bush. Like, yes, like, com- jokes are funnier when you have to explain them, even when they're not funny to begin with. Yes, uh, the, the so, uh, EMT, and that's all she's good for. So, yeah. So, uh, Mark Henry... Like trying, like struggling to keep a smile off his face when he's covering Mae Young up, it was quite funny. The reaction of King to think, like when he sees that the judges have unanimously declared Mae Young the winner, and also the fact that this segment is infamous for like May's flashing was not completely censored on the actual live version, which is part of the reason that uh, that and kind of the uh, Channel Four weren't aware of how violent the street fight was going to get later on. That's the main reason why WWE did not get uh, their deal with Channel Four was not renewed, and so like most of the story about this is uh, well for me at least is when Ken and Josh talks about seeing this pay per view for the first time and screaming when he sees me and sits so so much that uh, he woke his mum up who's sleeping on the couch and she said Ah Kenneth I just breath and went back. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to say, I'm so glad that wasn't the first ever breast I saw, because otherwise I think I would have been scarred for life. Uh, next stage, uh, Jericho <laughs> and China are arguing about who gets to wear the title to the AC title to the ring, and uh, to where Dave or Earl Hebner could have been either one. He like, takes it off him and brings it to the ring, 
And so it's Jericho versus China versus Harker Holly to crown the undisputed Intercontinental Champion. And I'll tell you this, lads. I've wrote down all my notes, please break down the main moves I could bother to remember from this match. Put down seven, seven minutes to 31, which you got. And then with an exclamation mark at the end, that match sucked. I was going to say, I don't, with this, I think it'd be pointless spending time on, purely for the fact... I mean, the one thing I will say about this... Well, no, two things, actually. China didn't look as bad in places as I thought she, she has done previously. Mm. Not as bad. I'm not saying good. I'm just saying not as bad. And and literally, Hardcore Holly had nothing to him from the crowd. They were just, oh, it's Hardcore Holly. That's it. And I mean... oh. If if you run it through the match, what have I written? China and YTJ backstage bickering. Hulk Holly versus YTJ versus China. Zero enthusiasm for Holly. China breaks up walls. China not as bad as I remember. Just a boring triple threat. One keeps getting thrown out kind of shit. And then Jericho and China going back and forth. China hits low blow. And it's it's just very paint by it's very paint by numbers and very I I, I mean this match could easily have not have happened and the pay-per-view would have been still been okay. That's it. There's nothing for me more to add. I've got no further opinion on it. Uh, see, the bit I'm... my note is not even a spot in the match. It's the fact that Gerald Lawler, after the same thing that we've just saw, at one point, for a reason, when he's describing how Hulk Holly probably feels about China, describes JR as a chauvinist. The irony. That's just absolutely daft. Um, I... I remember watching this match 20 years ago, which says how good the pay-per-view was, was that I somehow remembered this match. Um, <laughs> one of the interesting things was that the, on, uh, on the original VHS copy, it went to advert just before the match. So I'd never seen the argument between Jericho and China. And quite frankly, I didn't really miss much with that. Um, yeah. So the VHS copy always came back to Hardcore Holly throwing his arms up before he entered the ring. Um, and I just assumed that it was an audio issue back then, that there was no reaction. It turns out, no, nobody gave a shit that he existed. Um, the One of the only positives I'm going to throw out here, well, two positives. I'm going to throw out two positives because I'm going to try and find the positivity in FM1. Jericho was getting good reactions throughout. You could tell that he was gaining a connection with the crowd, which Scott, you and I have noticed previously when watching SmackDown, especially in comparison to China, who was getting booed, and Hardcore Holly, who was basically... Yeah, he was the human personification of crickets, unfortunately. Um, yeah. I mean, the, when he does his uh, drop kick and does like an Okada pose to show off how good he is, and like the crowd, you could, if it was 2020, they'd probably be on their mobile phones during this moment. Um, but I controversially like the idea of the code champions, the fact that both China and Chris Jericho had to take it in turns defending the championship because I felt that the story opportunities that it granted was quite interesting. You had to have it that these two different wrestlers taking it in turn, wanting to show off to one another, trying to prove they're better and they deserve it. The fact that the other person, despite hating them, has to get involved in order to save the championship, otherwise they both lose it. It's something that at the time I thought was quite fascinating and 20 years old, I still think it's something that should have been should have done more with. I mean, you've got it nowadays that the free bird rule is very popular. I mean, just look at the New Day, for instance. They do it every time they win the championship. You have the free bird rule where either one of them can be a partner to defend it. 
I would love to see a situation where instead of a title being vacated because of a draw, really, really go for it and say, no, actually, we're going to make you co-champions. And if either one of you loses, the uh, you both lose it. I mean, imagine the storytelling uh, opportunities you could create, the matches you could have, the all that sort of thing. I just feel it was something that had a lot more, um, what's the word I'm looking for, potential than was actually used. So... It's for me. It's always been a little bit disappointing that this was the match where they made the undisputed intercontinental champion Chris Jericho. Better get used to that word. Um, and it's it's a little bit it's a little bit unfortunate for me. I'd like to say also that I was surprised that Lawler was still going on about the swimsuit competition, but I'd be lying, so I'm not going to. Um, and amazingly. I'm surprised that China was allowed to use the pedigree, considering that Hardcore Holly can officially say he kicked out of the pedigree, which I can never imagine Triple H being happy about. But all in all, it was an average match, nothing special, and you could have pretty much have accidentally skipped it on the tape, and you wouldn't have lost anything apart from hearing Jericho was the undisputed champion in the Royal Rumble. In undisputed I mean, I, I mean, I nearly did, mate. I mean... The, the finish the finish was creative. I mean, yeah. China having the bo- like locking in the Boston Crab on Hardcore Holly and it being like and China kind of semi mocking Jericho like I've got you moved, dickhead. And yeah. then Y two J hitting the bulldog and then hitting the lion salt to get the win. Right result overall yeah. and a creative finish. And I mean, for me, that's the the, the creative finish is the only highlight of that match. I, I, I was bored as fuck watching it. Genuinely, I was like, Ugh, this is depressing. And that, that's, all I, that, that, that's all I can really say on it. I mean, Scott, what's what's? <laughs> can you add any more positivity to this dumpster fire? <laughs> I've, I've mentioned uh, several times on this podcast when I talked about the Jericho China food that having read uh, Jericho's second book, that he, he wasn't fond of working with China, and I often remember I'm pretty sure he just kind of brushes over this Intercontinental title match from the Rumble. Uh, in his book, and I don't know why, because if I were him, I wouldn't look back on it very fondly either. Same. Because it's just like Same. so awkward. Like, you had people, like, basically, the third person was always like standing around or very close, like, just waiting for their spot. Like, you'd have someone get through onto the outside, then the two people, one of the people in the ring would have a big move on the other, which wasn't worth me a kick out. So the other person would immediately have to dive back into the ring to break it up. Yeah, you had the pedigree, which China's pedigree, let's be honest, is shit. Uh, Hardcore Holly, the other thing with China's two bikes is Hardcore Holly, but then Hardcore Holly like, somehow manages to elevate himself where he's going to pin her, but he struggles to get his legs up en- enough to, uh, to get the pin, so he struggles to even do that. And yeah, the, the finish was fine. It was good. I just wanted it to be over. Uh, it's, it's quite telling that the line salt's not even called the line salt, it's called an acidity moonsault by, by uh, JR. And yeah, it's not the first time Jericho will be called Undisputed, and also. It's only the second biggest match Hawker Holly would ever have at a Royal Rumble because four years later he would challenge for the WWE title, which wouldn't go in a match that wouldn't go much longer than this. It was like about eight minutes. And if you believe the stories, the match went eight minutes. It was meant to go twice that, but got half because of Triple H and Shawn Michaels later on, later on in that card. And I can't imagine anybody wanting to watch 16 minutes of Hawker Holly versus Brock Lesnar. 
I wouldn't even want to watch a 16 minute hardcore Holly special. Why would I want to watch a 16 minutes of hardcore Holly versus Brock Lesnar? Um, eight minutes was just about right because it gave hardcore Holly the exact um, level of expectation as he should have, which is um, jack and shit. So <laughs> the the fact that he once stood up in the in a meeting supposing said, why don't you just give me the title and then I'll be everyone speaks to a complete and utter lack of awareness. Um hardcore I mean hardcore Holly. Hard Holly was hard as piss. Oh yeah. It he he was fantastic during the during this period of time as a member of the hardcore um, division, because he was legitimate hard as nails. And to some degrees, he was, he was relatively good in a in a revived ECW. He wasn't proper ECW, but he was tough enough that he was a fair inclusion. He shouldn't have been in an elimination chamber for the championship replacing Sabu, but that's by the by. We got, we got no chance of uh, ever changing that. He, had his suitabilities and he had his level um intercontinental and definitely the WWE championship is a level too high i feel he just yeah. isn't interesting enough to warrant that level of um no, attention. I, I get that i get that mm-hmm. i mean jericho from the off that you you know he had to be the one it was because he was the one that could actually give a fuck about Partly, I think because he's technically from New York, he was born there, his dad played hockey there, even called even at Madison Square Jericho. Just like the other two had very little personality. So Jericho's kinda of carrying that in that respect. And speaking of personality, we get the rock we get a rock promo after this, which helps build spirits. Because uh, the rock was interviewed by Michael Cole about the rumble, he said, Is there anybody you've got your eye on who may be a threat to you going into this rumble match? He went, Yes, there are two people. The Rock has to get by. One number one, headbanger mosh. Number two, crash Holly. After The Rock thinks if he can get by those two, he'll do just fine. And Michael goes like, yeah, then all seriousness, like, what about the big show? And uh, Rock kind of just shoved Michael Cole away after telling him to take a big glass of shut up juice. <laughs> and then he says about the big show, they said like, big show, you think you're so good. You think you're going to win the Rumble. Think you can throw The Rock over the top rope. Well, quite honest, The Rock wipes a monkey's ass with what you thought. It's just a classic rock promo, isn't it? That's, yeah. <laughs> it? It warms the cockles to see it, um, especially like nowadays when you don't, you don't get the opportunity to have as much personality as that in WWE at time. It's very rare that that occurs. The Rock is... Just you have you know you have the saying that the um, that there's wrestlers who could have a five star match with a broomstick. Well, the Rock could do a five star promo about a broomstick. He could probably yeah. do a five star promo about a freaking cockroach and still put it over or decimate it to all um, to all levels. You know, like Billy Gunn. Um, so Ooh. it's <laughs> watching the Rock is one of the few people that you would pay just to speak. Because he is so fucking good at it. Um, and that's very rare. That amount of charisma, you can feel it 
crackling off the screen at times. I mean, I remember, Scott, when we were watching that SmackDown episode together, that um, I think about halfway through, not much had happened, and then suddenly The Rock appeared, and you just felt the gulf completely between him and everyone else that had appeared so far because of his charisma, his magnitude of appearance, how he just came across, etc. He just, he is a superstar without question and every time he appears he shoots a jolt of energy into the entire pay-per-view oh yeah definitely and the whole thing about the rock and big show going into this is that there was a match on the, the go home smackdown that was basically designed to say who are the three guys that could realistically win this rumble match with rock versus big show versus kane and also a week before that big show and guys like brace yourself for this revolution. The week before that, the big show turned heel. No. <laughs> yeah, and like I said, like I'll count heel and face turns since his debut. I'm going to keep a counter going through this review, including ones that didn't happen as part of the review. So this is January of 2000. He debuted February 1999, and his turn on the Rock during a tag team match uh, two weeks ago was his fourth turn to either heel-to-face or face-to-heel in 11 months. Four uh, turns I, I, in 11 I, I, months. I, on, on this, I've just found out an interesting fact. Well, I, I, I don't know if either of you know this. How many times do you think Sho has t- turned either face or heel in his career? Because I've got, I've got the number. 72 times. Okay. I think, it's, I think, I think I've heard it's like between 30 to 40 odds. So, 38. 34 times. That's fucking ridiculous. That is ridiculous. So, as I mentioned like, in the last episode, he debuted as a heel, obviously, but then turned face to join with like the Union, uh, turned heel to partner with The Undertaker, and then, in terms of that, so that's two before this retro even started, turned face, and he's feud with Bossman after Undertaker left, and then turned heel on The Rock, and then basically did, as uh, we described on the Go on episode, he came out on Smith and did the you people from all like basically like the rock's being mean to me, which he get which he was, and like but the rock's so much more charismatic, so people cheered him over Big Show. And then the rock basically cut Big Show down and he says like Big Show, you're seven foot tall, five hundred pounds. Why are you booing me? <laughs> <laughs> basically, yeah, like basically asking people, why don't you like me? I just want to be loved. <laughs> that's just oh that is not even surprising it, i mean the only positive out of that is that at least we can see for definite that the big show started his ww career as he would continue it flip-flopping 100 mm, percent that that figure does not surprise me at 30 odds um quite frankly um the the disappointment of you I almost would have liked to have seen the Big Show have stayed face in this match, like in the lead up to the Rumble. Because if it, I think it would be more interesting to have a face Big Show saying that he wants to take the title back from Triple H and then having The Rock still as face and giving two options for the, for the crowd to see what happens. But the moment that Big Show turns heel... You are eliminating so many options, I feel. It's just... It, I don't disagree with that, mate. I know, I know what you're saying. Like you either, you, if you have them both baiting, you either go, right, do you want Big Show or do you want Rock? Yeah. 
Mm. I mean, think of like, um, for instance, like one of my favorite rumbles ever, uh, 2004, you have probably easily three to four main baby faces who could, who could win. And that is a really good number. Look at like 2001, for instance, you have rock Austin Kane and undertaker who are all relatively popular to some degrees who had a possibility of winning. That's, really good numbers 2005 you had batista and john cena just with those two you create a more interesting dichotomy in the rumble because you can split the crowd you can see which one they um adhere to more the moment they turn big show heel they removed a lot of interest out of the rumble to some degrees and yeah, The Rock is always going to be awesome, completely ripping Big Show to pieces. And, you know, a fair play. That's what he's good at. But it, I just feel there would have been so much more interest if you had kept them, kept both face and you had Kane as well being pushed. Because Kane could have been a dark horse contender, especially considering that he won the uh, one on the recent SmackDown beforehand. The opportunities you had there were so huge and... WWE kind of shot themselves in the face in the face by um, removing a lot of really interesting options to it. So it's unfortunate. Yeah, and so guys, if you, if you'll allow me, I need to take the floor for a second here because next up we have the tag team title match. And by the way, the graphic here, fucking early two thousands Photoshop is like these guys do not look natural. The athletes or the it was the pictures that you choose do not look natural whatsoever. Uh, so yeah, at, at, uh, at Armageddon, there was a big tag team battle royal, which the acolytes won in the tag title show at the Royal Rumble. There have been six weeks between the between Armageddon and the Safeview. Six weeks, six episodes of Raw, six episodes of SmackDown. The first two or three weeks, the acolytes had a feud with the Mean Street Posse. Jesus. And then you had, you know, this was when the time DX came to power. DX were more talk about focused on taking out contenders for the able title. So they spent more time targeting Christian, Edge, and the Hardys, more so than the guys who were the actual number one contenders for the tight team titles, which further backs up the point I made on that podcast that the Hardys, based on the three or the four weeks leading into Armageddon, should have won that battle royal to begin with. Mm. Uh, and then you got this promo package, right? I remember watching this promo package before I'd ever seen the pay-per-view. And so I thought, oh, there's decent build here. And I remembered the promo between the, what the outlaws with the SmackDown set in the background. So for six weeks, I was waiting for this promo. I was waiting for it. I was waiting for it. The promo that you hear from the outlaws on this video package and the bit you see of the in-ring promo of the acolytes responding to that promo, both of those promos, took place on Sunday Night Heat. <laughs> so the build to this Ridiculous. took place on Sunday Night Fucking Heat. I'm watching Raw, I'm watching SmackDown, I don't have time to watch Heat. And then the main bit from Raw SmackDown that you did show was a bit from like the Go Home episode where they all went to Tim White's bar and got into a bar fight, which was okay. And then like you had like, the acolytes being put into handicap matches against both against the outlaws and neither of their partners could interfere otherwise they'd lose their tag title shot. That was fine. But the real build to this match happened 
two weeks before this pay-per-view. So those first four weeks were fucking nothing was going on. And and it shows the amount of care that went into this match. This match went two minutes 39. So was, it only, was it 2.39 it went? Two minutes. Oh, 39. I'm pretty sure I've had longer um, uh, urinations. Well, that's where you're going with that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, yeah. Okay. I, I stopped for a second waiting, that, but I think I've peed longer than this match took. So, and I think the promo package was longer. Um, yeah, well, it was. Two, it minutes, was. two minutes 39. Do you realize how many Goldberg matches you could fit into that time? Probably uh, seven. Three? <laughs> oh, close. We were close in our guesses. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, like looking at it, like no, what notes have I got? APA versus New Age Outlaws underway quickly. I mean, I know I've called them APA in my notes, but they're acolytes. A- acolytes battering New Age Outlaws. <laughs> X Pack comes out, <laughs> and that's pretty much it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to say that f- um, there was two interesting things that happened. Well, three. I'm going to say actually, because like I said, I'd like to. Actually, I'm going to go so far as four because I keep on looking at my notes and seeing a new one. So you're lying. One. Yeah. <laughs> so one, the fact that Jr. calls the Outlaws the best tag team in WWF history is pretty much hilarious in hindsight, considering that this pay per view featured the Hardy Boys, the Dudley Boys, and Edge and Christian. So quite frankly, I'm not entirely sure the Outlaws were the best tag team. In their tag team match, let alone in fucking history. Um, secondly, seeing Ron Simmons, Farouk, dancing like Road Dog is an image I never expected to see in my life. Um, seeing Bradshaw, Poe Road Dog, down by the hair, I feel was weirdly funny, but also uncomfortable because of his bullying antics. And finally, I don't know whether either of you realize Bradshaw gets pinned by Billy Gunn. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh. The man is the legal man. So it's basically oh. like Tim White went, fuck you, Bradshaw, and counted to three. And I'm like, I, d- I did. I did notice that. And I did think, huh. Yeah. I thought, to be fair, Bradshaw's a dick. So I don't care. So but, well, he wasn't that much of a dick back then, though, was he? He really came to the kind of peak of his dickheadedness when it was um, when he became JBL. I know he was a bit of an ass when it kind of came to wrestlers' court back in the day with Taker and things, but overall, like he, the peak of his knobness was was his JBL time, like, um, and obviously him bullying Maro out of frigging out of commentary and things. That was when he was really at the peak of being an asshole. Behind scenes, yeah, I'm thinking it's like, um, ba- like basically the fact that Bradshaw hit Gun into Tim White without even giving a shit. Like, just like Tim White is basically a victim, and the moment Tim White wakes up, he decides to count the three on Bradshaw. Is basically him giving an eternal fuck you to Bradshaw. That's what you get for pushing me over. So I'm kind of surprised with, that we didn't then get a two-month feud between Bradshaw and Tim White because the opportunities were there. I mean, can you imagine the tickets that wouldn't have sold if you were selling that? I mean, it only would have it only would have ended up in really poor taste vignettes, as we would find out in later years. Yeah, that's very true. To be fair, I think, as I said, Tim White, that he owns that bar that is shown in the video package, the friendly tap, which Dewey would often use as a new like a bar bar brawl segment. And so I think, in a way, as Tim White basically kind of like 
screw you, Bradshaw, this is what you get for fucking up my bar. So, <laughs> Tim White, it's official here, Tim White screwed the, the acolytes. It's so, like, there are two ways this match should have gone, and neither of which is what happened. If you're going to have it very short, either have the, uh, out, have the acolytes come out, who the outlaws met that they're afraid of, and they had that match, that one thing with the ring basically broke. Had the outlaws basically get killed in two minutes by the challengers and lose the titles, and then you can give them the belts back on Raw afterwards. Or had the acolytes be so violent that the match gets thrown out. Don't have the acolytes just get screwed after two minutes after you wait six weeks to get this match. And spoiler alert, outlaws are going to hold the titles to it in no way out where they'll lose them. And spoiler, it's not to the acolytes. The acolytes get no redemption from this. And like, yeah, it was Farouk trying to pin Road Dog, which then led to the brawl, which caused the ref to get taken out. But then, yeah, because Xbox came in, hit Bradshaw, and then a famous sir by Billy Gutton to Bradshaw, and somebody just goes, ah, oh, fuck it, and counts it. Because no one gives a fuck about the rules. I feel like a bit in Big Lebowski. Am I the only one who gives a shit about the rules? <laughs> <laughs> Oh god, I completely agree. Uh, it's just like I, as a child, I was never going to notice that Billy Gunn and Bradshaw were not the legal men. But the moment I saw this, this time, I was instantly like, "Wait a minute, that's not the rules!" And it really annoyed me. And then I was like, "Sam, it's because you're a big fucking mark. You're yeah, you're a mark. Yeah, you're, cynical, you're bitter. I am so cynical and bitter. You fucking know it." So. God, uh, to be fair, I don't know why I care so much about a match. I think I've cared longer than that match actually fucking existed. So, quite frankly, um, I feel that this match is just not worth the time. So, basically, the last two matches you could have cut out and you wouldn't have missed anything. No, I don't disagree with that. Pretty much. Hello there, it's uh, Future Scott here. Just letting you know that as we feared would happen, uh, this review is going to split into two parts as we've talked for so long and when about the time we finished talking about the tag team title match, we decided that was a good point to kind of stop the recording there. That'll be part one and hopefully in the next couple of days we can get together and record part two to talk about the street fight and the Royal Rumble match itself and hopefully be able to hear that uh, towards the end of next week so we hope you understand we hope you've enjoyed everything you've heard so far and we hope you'll tune in to part two and we'll, we'll see you then <laughs>